1: In this week's episode, I was always doing injections, but I would be doing them on the sly. I would never, ever inject in front of anybody. Um, That would always, if I was out injecting, that would always be in toilets.
0: But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now let's get stuck into this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Insulone podcast. Redefining diabetes. Hope everybody is well and you are looking forward to this great chat that I have with my next guest. So, his name is Scott Burrell. He is from the UK. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 11 and has been living with type 1 for over 21 years. Now, despite having the condition for so long, he didn't always have the smoothest life with it. When he got into his teen years, he began to become very self-conscious of the whole thing he start started to hide it he kept it a secret he neglected his diabetes management which inevitably led to various incidents where he needed medical assistance so his blood sugars would drop dangerously low he would pass out his blood sugars would be high for long periods of time this went on for a number of years and there were two turning points in Scott's life where he decided Enough is enough. This is something that needs to change. And it did change. So it's inspiring to hear Scott's story from an 11-year-old who went from denying things, avoiding things, pretending like he doesn't even have diabetes, to now somebody who is proudly diabetic, who is running marathons, half marathons, is massively involved with the diabetes community and has represented his country in the Diabetic European Championships for futsal. So, amazing journey, very inspirational, and I know you're going to get a lot of value from this episode. So, enjoy myself and Scott's chat. But let's just jump back 20-odd years ago. How did you know something was up? How did you know you had to go to the hospital?
1: Um, Yeah, so it was... It was actually the oct the october half term so this is i just started secondary school it was the first half term end of october um and i was just ill um it's probably the best way and it got to the stage where i was so bad that i was just laying on the sofa and usually half term i'll be down the, the local green in the village playing football with um all my mates um but yeah i was on the sofa. well i think I wasn't on the sofa to start with, but I just kept feeling worse and worse. I was going to the toilet all the time, drinking ridiculous amounts. I was uh, going to a supermarket around the corner from where we were living at the time um, and just buying a whole variety of drinks. A lot of them, especially in those days were all sugar drinks. So we was getting diet drinks was difficult. And of course there was no reason for me then to drink n- n- no added sugar or, or no sugar drinks. So I was drinking ridiculous amounts and it got to the Wednesday of that week and mum and dad, um called a doctor out so not booked me a doctor's appointment called the doctor out a doctor came around on the wednesday night i did a urine test which was very easy for me to do so i was going to the toilet every 10 minutes anyway <laughs> um, yeah. and it's like oh you need to t- take him to the hospital so dad drove me up to the hospital that wednesday night um, i was taken into a ward i'm guessing it was probably the children's ward um i'm not sure they'd have a specific sort of diabetes one then i was strapped up almost like a scene from casualty or holby city um and then i think they'd done a a finger prick test or what i had a a cannula in me and my blood came back at 33.7 um which is obviously crazy probably
0: about six fifteen for any american listeners so very 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 high
1: um but again that that obviously meant nothing to me at the time i didn't know i didn't know anything about diabetes blood sugar i was a, just a 11 a year old kid um so it meant nothing to me but then they, they said always right like, Got diabetes, so um, then I was on a drip to to get my sugar level down. I'd assume I'd have been in DKA at the time as well, but again, obviously, I knew nothing about anything to do with diabetes, so I'm not completely sure on that. Um, and basically, then spent five days in hospital, um, and I left on the Sunday, uh, coming out of insulin and test strips, and um, obviously, there's no CGMs or Libras or anything in those days. Um, came back and and that was kind of the start for me I was feeling a lot better but I still didn't realize that I was in this this is kind of something you've got for the the rest of your life now
0: so while you were in hospital you were there for three four nights what sort of let's call it diabetes education did you get while you were there because I'm sure that as an 11 year old child this is a massive shock you're rushed into hospital you have all these wires drips hanging out of you not exactly knowing what's going on, have never really even heard of the word diabetes. What were you being told in the hospital to prepare you for when you left the hospital?
1: Um- to be honest, that is hard for me to answer now because I can't remember. There are a few things I remember about really specifics on foods which have always stuck with me. Um, one of them was eating grapes. I remember eating some at the time and one of the, the nurses there had said to me, oh, you, you should never eat more than eight grapes in one sitting um, because they're, they're quite high in sugar. And I'd sort of said, oh, but um, if, if I have a little bit of sugar, is that okay? And that kind of sums up how little I knew then because of course I know every human Per, needs glucose to, to live if you've got no glucose in your s- system then um, you're not going to be very well at all but I was under this impression that that just meant I can't have any sugar and I, I, I didn't really understand the makeup of food then, in terms of carbs and proteins and fats and fibers and everything else, um, so I, I was really under the impression that I couldn't touch anything with sugar in, uh, which obviously wasn't quite true. I'd always remember this story about the grapes, and which now sounds a bit silly because obviously technology and insulins have moved on, and um, we can eat pretty much what we like to a certain extent, um so what i was told then i I also remember my dad saying to me oh this will change your life and i just responded straight myself nothing will change my life um as like an 11 year old kid would would say so yeah in terms of any other specific i think it's probably the more they were talking to my parents rather than me um probably because they would say at that age you you wouldn't understand um, a huge amount uh, but I, another thing was I wasn't allowed to leave until I'd done an injection myself so obviously I'd never injected myself of anything before at that age um, but at any age you shouldn't be injecting yourself with things should you um, but, um, and I, I remember my right I put one in my right quad, but um, it hurt like hell. Um, but it, I, it was I had to do it because then I was allowed to leave. Um, obviously, things were a lot better by then in terms of my levels and everything. So I'd done this injection into my right quad, um, and that became a favoured injection site for me for many years after then um, because it was basically the one that allowed me to leave hospital um this was when i was on the mixed insulin like i said so it was two injections a day which was 70 percent um long acting and 30 percent short acting insulin um it was the humulin m3 uh which i ended up staying on for many years um so yeah those would be kind of like the key takeaway points from hospital i can't remember too much that i was told the specifics about the condition which are just those sort of bits that have always stuck with me there
0: So were you under the impression that this was something that you were going to come out of? You were kind of just sick for a few days and in two, three weeks, you're going to be back to your energetic football loving 11 year old self Uh, or had it dawned on you that this is now essentially a lifelong condition?
1: I think so, yeah, especially with what my dad had said to me, um, saying, oh, it'll change your life. I, I must have realised it was with me forever, but I always remember as well. I think my first, so if we jump forward um, a couple of months just quickly, I remember going to like a, a check-up uh, appointment with one of like the the, the diabetic doctors at the hospital and i, I remember my dad asking him all like well, obviously there's research for a cure and whatnot well when would we expect a cure and it then so "It'll be within five years um and obviously that's been a very long five years now um <laughs> yeah. and i know that's something that a lot of people when they get diagnosed get told the big five or even the five to ten year bracket is given um and people have been being told this like since the 90s um, and obviously we're still waiting and if we're being honest we're probably not going to get it um, so even even when when you're hearing oh five years you think well okay like five years is quite bad but it's not the end of the world I can I can deal with this
0: yeah it's funny to think that you were told back in the late 90s that there would be a cure in five years and then in 2012 I was diagnosed with type 1 and I was told there might be a cure five to 10 years. And as you say, we're still waiting and we probably won't be getting one anytime soon. Hate to break it to anybody listening. Yeah. So how did you feel you adapted to this new way of living? Because I'm sure Scott, as we both know, living with type one for so long, it's such a massive part of your day. It's almost like your day fits into your diabetes and your diabetes fits into your day. So, like the flick of a switch overnight you were told first you're quote unquote a normal 11 year old and then overnight you're told type 1 diabetic have to take insulin multiple times a day watch what you eat lifelong condition all these terrible terrible things to hear as an 11 year old how did you feel you adapted to that initially that that lifestyle change
1: uh, I think initially I was okay um, I did what I was told what I was doing the two it, it was an injection before breakfast and an injection before your evening meal always did my injections um, always tested out. I, I wouldn't take it I don't remember or if I did it was only for a few weeks or a short period of taking like a, a blood glucose monitor to school with me um but I I didn't need to take an injection pen because I would have breakfast and evening meal at home um so I would I would do as I was told in the sense of do my injections um monitor my blood which I think then there was just sort of saying oh test like before you eat um, I was always injecting the same amount which kind of doesn't make a great deal of sense when you look at it now and a lot of the time we'll manage injections on. If we're high, we'll inject more. If we're lower, then we'll inject less, um, et cetera. But no, I was always injecting the same amount. Um, I was on 34 units in the morning, 34 um, in the evening. Um, so... I I did what I was told. I I think I was okay. I I described it uh, before as being like a a honeymoon period, um, a a mental honeymoon period where you've got this new condition, um, but you're dealing with it. You're living your life. Um, Obviously, it's not ideal, but um, it's quite new. So you're okay with it. Um, So I was going through that mental honeymoon and I was okay. It was after that period really when I I'd stopped testing a lot and and kind of started telling myself that I I didn't want anything to do with it.
0: Did you start to
1: more?
0: did you start to avoid it more as you got older, or was it when you left your house? Because it seems that because you were eating at home, because you were taking your insulin at home, that was almost like your safe diabetic space. Was it a gradual process that you began to keep things a secret from people publicly your family even yourself or was it any time you left the house
1: um i would say an age thing um certainly if you if we move forward a few years so when we're like getting into teenage years um yeah i think because you don't want to be seen as different at that age and of course it, it, injecting yourself to keep yourself alive is different to a, a normal or a non-diabetic person um so yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't talk to family about it i wouldn't talk to anyone about it I, obviously I, I was i was always doing injections but i would be doing them on the sly i would never ever inject in front of anybody um that would always if i was out in injecting that would always be in toilets obviously if i was at home i'd just do it at home but yeah it would, it would be a case of I, I didn't want anything to know about it as I got older, because you don't you don't at that age you don't want to be seen as different, you want to fit in and you want to do normal things be normal uh, and type one isn't normal if for for want of a better word
0: yeah, I think and that's something i always I always refer back to my my own circumstances with because I was diagnosed at nineteen, and I feel that at that age I was already pretty confident in myself. And I was at that age where I could understand how serious this thing was. And I was old enough to take care of it myself. And I feel that because there's obviously no varied severities of type 1 diabetes, but the circumstances around when people are diagnosed, where people are diagnosed, the age they're diagnosed can obviously have a significant effect on them mentally and both physically in terms of whether or not they're managing their diabetes as we all know we should when i listen to somebody talk about keeping things a secret or avoiding their management the the big thing that jumps out at me is hypos because as we both know falling into a hypo is like the worst thing as a diabetic yeah it's a horrible feeling it takes you depending on how low you go can take you a couple hours to kind of get back to how you feel normally because you you were hiding it in a way had you any severe hypos as a result of that
1: yeah um again i think i'd never had that many because i was injecting in sites where the body was finding it hard to process the insulin um which was something i did for quite while. Well. so i'd imagine a lot of the time i was actually hyper more and of course there aren't you, you don't tend to get symptoms as much mentally it can affect you but you're not going to be sort of passed out on the floor if if your blood glucose is up at like 14 15 which is what um in the sort of two fifty, three hundreds for the Americans. Um, you know, you can d uh, high are less um visible than hypers. And I think mm. I'd think I'd had more hypers. Um in that age, but there were certainly high poses where I've had a couple of ambulances called, unfortunately, uh, which is completely my own fault, um, or others where I've had like mum and dad putting the um, like the rubbing the glucagel on the in the inside of my gums and on my, my cheeks uh, in on the inside to get it into the system. Um, and yeah, that that would come from me not testing and not wanting to to take awareness or ownership of it myself.
0: You mentioned there that you had ambulances call on you a few times. What were the circumstances around that? Because that's obviously flashing red light.
1: Yeah. I mean, that just bad hypos where not, I mean, with all we a you probably, we all have hypos where we might drop to just under the, the four threshold. And, you know, you might feel a bit funny, but a few jelly babies or a few sweets and, and you're back to normal. But these were ones where I was like passed out or almost like the body shutting off. Um, where I'm not responsive if you if you were just to look um it looks like you're asleep but um obviously it's a lot more serious than that um and I mean thankfully well, when the, these things happened it was a case of I'm not taken away to hospital in the ambulance you know and the, they they bring you round um whether that's with a, a small drip or again putting um like the glue glucog- rubbing the glucogel on the inside um of your mouth uh, on your gums and inside your cheek Um, and then I'm okay again but yeah I would got myself into that position where these weren't hypos that you could deal with just by having a couple of sweets or a few uh, sips of orange juice or something no they they were worse than that and it was because of my own mismanagement or 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 not mismanagement but lack of management and and lack of taking ownership and care
0: yeah it's interesting to hear these sorts of stories and I know a few people that have been in similar situations too. Personally, I haven't dropped that low, thankfully. Not yet. <laughs> but it's it. I suppose it just goes to show you how quickly and how often, potentially, things can go from okay to very, very bad, living with type 1. Now, I, I don't want to make a joke of people going into severe hypos, but I was reading a funny story about you this morning, Scott, about when I believe one of your old friends was the manager at Domino's and you were a delivery driver. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Well, this was one where I was I was honoured to do in a delivery, and uh, again because of my lack my lack of management, I, di- I didn't have any um hypo treatments with me. Um, so I know I'm hypo. I'm not in a great place, but I'm not. I- I'm still aware of what's going on and i'm not in need of an ambulance or anything like that um but i'm not in a great place um i've got no sort of fast acting sweets or, or drinks on me but what i do have is bags full of Domino's pizzas and the various side <laughs> orders that they have so it that kind of left me in a situation where i had to start um eating one of the um deliveries and um i did that it was the chicken dippers or kickers or whatever they call them which is like breaded bits of chicken. Um, I had a couple of those I delivered to the the customer. And um, from what I gather, there was no complaint ever made that they were a couple short. Um, So I kind of got away with that one. Um, But again, on a more serious point with that is those are the kind of things which are really not very good for treating hypos because bread and they're they're more longer acting carbs. But I was in a situation where it was that or nothing. And that was better than nothing. So um, I went with it, but yeah, there there was me picking it orders um, because I, I, I had no other option.
0: And did you tell the people that the delivery was for that there was a medical emergency? I had to dip into your order.
1: No, I didn't tell them. I didn't even my my mate who's still a good friend of mine who, who um, was the manager there at the time. Um, again, we're going back quite a few years here, uh, but I don't remember telling him. He doesn't know now, um, but no, I think again, I was keeping it secret because I wouldn't want to tell anyone about diabetes and it wasn't something I was sort of, proud of or wanted to bandish about or look at me, I'm diabetic, you know, and something like that would again go in the same bracket of let's keep this secret, let's let's not engage with it, let's let's deal with it and then forget about it and I'm fine.
0: How are the people close to you reacting to all of this? Because it seems as if when you were at home you were checking your blood sugar, you were taking your insulin, that's where you were eating. As we said, that was kind of your safe diabetic space. But were you Were your family, were any of your friends aware of the fact that once you left the house, you were really struggling with it physically to look after it and even even more so the emotional, mental side of it to think, I just want to completely avoid this
1: um yeah i mean obviously close friends knew that I, I i was diabetic but they wouldn't know a great deal about it um because i wouldn't really talk about it that much and like anything i, I don't know a lot about other medical conditions myself that i i i don't have or things so i I don't really blame them for that um so they were always aware that i was diabetic and a lot of the time not not a lot of the time but when i was having hypos they would often just say to me you need some sugar that would just be a line of curve you need some sugar and i would and i would know that i would um but i would say um straight away no i'm fine no i'm fine again because i don't really want to engage with it i don't want anything to do with it but i would that would just be a complete lie because i'd know i would need some sugar again it was like a, what you'd call a, a mild hypo i push fear probably slurring some words a little bit maybe looking look, sometimes your eyes go a bit funny just things like that but I was still um aware of, of what was going on around me and that um and I would always go and have some just to, uh, on the sly um because I wouldn't want to make a big deal about it or it, engage with it so yeah friends would know what was happening and yeah sometimes I'd have these mild hypos which aren't the end of the world um uh, and I would deal with them in secret as much as I could. Um, so yeah i would say i was okay with that aspect of of dealing with it when i was out but again it was all about hiding it you know i wouldn't want to be telling people or I would not want to be seen doing an injection I would always do my injections when I was eating either the breakfast and evening meal if I did happen to be eating out uh one time if I was at a friend's or something um so I'd always be doing my injections but again I would be in a toilet I would be somewhere where no one else w- would see me because it all goes back to this thing was I'm hiding it I don't want anything to do with it I don't want to know about it myself let alone let alone other people know I've got it
0: what I'm interested to hear about now, and it seems as if a lot of people who are diagnosed earlier in life, it's quite often to go through that phase of denial or just trying to completely avoid their management, pretending like they don't have it. Was there a specific turning point in your life, Scott, where you said, right? enough is enough i need to really take this thing on i need to understand how important it is for me to look at look after this every day
1: yeah like a smaller one and then a bigger one so the smaller point for me would be when I, I left like home as in moved out living with mum and dad um i moved in with a, a real good friend of mine and um so we, we rented we we're renting this the house and um he'd moved in sort of three or four weeks before me and i'd always delayed moving in because it was uh, living at home was a bit of a safety blanket in terms of if, if anything went wrong um or like mum would be there um when i not want to say anything went wrong if i'm if i've had a hypo or anything like that and it was a bit of a running joke with my friends because um obviously we needed to buy some furnishings for this house and i would to buy a bed um and i I was really really delaying buying a mattress and obviously without a mattress you can't really live somewhere eventually i did buy one but i was just delaying it because it was quite nervous for me leaving that safety blanket uh, of living at home and, and having mum there where i knew if if anything would happen and that triggered for me like i need to start taking more care i need to be testing more i need to be more open i need to I think would t- yeah, testing more is the big one because if you're testing more you're aware of what your levels are you can act whether you're low high where you need to be but if you're not testing and I really wasn't testing it at all much for many years once you start doing that then a lot of other things fall into place so eventually I'd ordered this mattress mattress got delivered I did move in about six seven weeks later than when we actually signed to rent the house where I paid probably that all that rent for nothing effectively but it was a it was a psychological diabetes thing where i was a bit nervous about leaving that safety blanket but looking back now even it was a a stupid thing to do because i was fine and it actually helped me take more care of myself and the condition and of course my friend i'd I'd moved in with he was obviously aware i was type one as well so um yeah that was a smaller kind of turning point for me then obviously the big one was um the diabetes football community where i'd never really met or spent time with any other type ones and then suddenly I'm in a university lecture room and then a sports hall playing football with 30 other um, type ones that are all into football playing football watching football all type ones for some for like 30 odd years and some for one or two years and everything in between and that was a real watershed moment for me because I'm not well there's other people here with this condition just like me living life uh, as any person does um and I actually remember at that session there was a little bit of media interest because this was a, a kind of first of its kind like a, a the uk having a footfall footsal futsal team which is all going to be players who are all type one diabetic um and the the bbc uh like local Radio and local TV area were there, and they wanted someone just to answer a few questions. And I was—I'm not sure whether I put myself forward or whether I was kind of put forward. But anyway, it ended up me doing it, and I was like, "Well, I went to this session driving there, really not knowing any of the type ones, not wanting to have too much interest in being type one myself." And three hours later, I'm. Or on a video which the bbc have put on facebook which has had like so many thousands of views of me talking about being type one and what's it like playing football with other type ones uh, meeting of the type ones and that was a that was a probably a, the shortest period of time in my life with such big changes because then i became a lot more open obviously there was so much chat at this session about type one managing it in day-to-day life managing it playing football and everything in between um so that without doubt was the biggest turning point for me
0: yeah i feel it's it's similar to so many other diabetics that you'd speak to where it's for years this massively isolating condition where it's with you 24 hours a day there's no break even when you're asleep it can wake you up and there's always interruptions and it can feel so isolating and when you get involved with for me it was the online diabetic community which kind of opened my eyes to how many other people around the world have this and then for you going to this football event with the diabetic football team it seems as if it was just like a brand new world that just opened up in front of your eyes
1: absolutely yeah it's and again you mentioned the online community yeah I, i'm involved with that i think it's absolutely fantastic and yeah like you say so many people from i was going to say all over the country but really it's all over the world um connecting sharing ideas giving advice and you can you can pick up so much great information um from that that's something i've done as well obviously the, the diabetes football community have got a heavy presence on all the social medias with that too um so no that, that's been another Plus, for me, speaking to so many other type ones, I've been involved with, jumping slightly further ahead here again, um, Paul Coker, a uh, guy based in Wales, who runs One Bloody Drop, which um, is focused around a lot of type ones running and just he, he some other sports too. But that's another great community. So, yeah, I think there's so many of these some would say quite niche online communities related to type one but there's so many different ones of them there's probably something that a majority of people listening to this now would be able to say well i'm interested in this i'm interested in that and you can join one of these communities and find out so much information about managing type one which without sounding over the top is going to improve and enhance your life well,
0: that's it's not going over the top because it it genuinely does do that it first firstly it opens up the new world, as we said, to all these other diabetics that exist out there. And for you thinking that this is just me who has this for so many years, I feel we shouldn't underestimate the importance of connecting with other diabetics around the world. And if ever I speak to somebody who's newly diagnosed, or if I've done an interview with somebody and they say, what would your advice be to somebody who has just been diagnosed with diabetes? It's always might go to get involved with a diabetic community whatever that, that may be online a local football team a local book club whatever yeah. it may be just get around other diabetics because you will learn more about your condition speaking to other people that live with it than any other way it's that's just the way it is and I actually did an interview with Chris Bright. You obviously know well, Scott. Yeah. So, Chris is the founder of the diabetic football community. And with the interview I did with him for the podcast, he had an analogy for diabetes and he referred back to it, obviously related to football. And he said, A bad day with diabetes or a bad, day, a bad week with diabetes is like a bad pass in football. And he said, If I make a bad pass in football, I'm not just going to get pissed off and run off the pitch. I'm going to get the ball again and make another better pass. And I'm going to learn from that mistake. And that really hit, hit home with me because diabetes, there's so much trial and error every day of the week, every year that you live with it, you learn more. And it's not like if things go bad, I can throw my hat at it and say, ah, fuck this, I give up. It's right, I'll reset. What did I learn? How can I improve? how can tomorrow be a better day with this condition
1: exactly yeah yeah com- completely right um, and you don't let the, the lows or the, the downs kind of get at you too much because everyone has them um, no one's got that perfect flat line although there, there is another saying that the, the, the flat line on a libra or a a flash or a CGM. um The only people with flat lines are dead, um, <laughs> which is probably quite true. Even I've seen some graphs of non-diabetics wearing CGMs or flash, and they're, they're by no means flat lines. They do have highs. They, they, the body brings them back down. But yeah, any if you're having a bad day or a bad time, yeah, like it's it's just a bad pass. You can get over it. The next day is new, um, and you can start again.
0: Exactly, and that's it. It's just reset go again tomorrow's a new day that's the way it is and it's funny that you mentioned somebody who isn't diabetic wearing a CGM so continuous glucose monitor for anybody who doesn't know what that is but I did an interview recently with Tom Allison who was a type 1 diabetic from the UK and he had put a CGM on his girlfriend and still seeing those ups and downs ups and downs ups and downs so even if you are not diabetic, you still have ups and downs. So don't be yeah. discouraged by those those ups and downs. Scott, how do you feel your life differs now as someone who takes exceptional care of their diabetes compared to back when you were younger, denying you had it, keeping it a secret, avoiding your management? What does a, what does a normal day look like for you now compared to then?
1: uh you for sure you feel a lot more in control so um i mean i've had times before going back quite a few years where i would see waking up in the morning as a result because i thought there's there'd always be a higher chance if i had a bad hypo during the night and you're asleep then you could be in a real world of bother um but now and obviously the advancement in technology like you mentioned cgms flash glucose monitoring um or the alarms connected with that um you're so much more aware which is obviously a massive boost mentally um for you um but yeah for me taking more care has made me feel better for sure i feel like i'm in more control um i know what its glucose is doing um i've learned more about the condition and what eating certain types of foods or not eating them can kind of do to the body um so uh, fundamentally it's made me happier um for for sure being a more open and honest and happy to talk about it with people i'll inject anywhere now um i've injected on like the tube busy tube platforms in london or where and i think if i look back if if 10-15 years i would never if even contemplating I remember doing an injection. The, sat at one of the England games in Wembley Stadium, and uh, a work colleague I was with at the time um, was saying, "Well, look, now you've I think it's like you've injected in front of fifty six thousand people, effectively, <laughs> which is was kind of true." Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, y- years ago, I would never have. Um, even considered I would not want to inject in front of one or two people, let alone on a busy train platform or a a sports stadium or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I think overall it's made me um, feel happier and and more in control. And, yeah, compared to going back all those years, control and happiness would certainly be the the big two differentials.
0: Yeah, they, they seem to go hand in hand. Even personally, if I'm having a really bad diabetic day now or in the past, it's tough to be as happy as you you know you can be when you're fighting the highs and the lows, both physically and mentally. It's interesting that you say you injected in front of 56,000 people. And I know that you mentioned the BBC interview previously, and it has about 9,000 views. But were you checking your blood sugar live during that interview, I think I read that this morning.
1: Yeah, so that, that was quite a funny thing because, I, I, yeah, so whilst that was going on, and this was before I was on any um, like CGM or Flash, um, so I was doing a finger prick test, um, and that that came back at one point eight um now i was drinking oh, wow. lucas this was after the session um my hope hyper awareness is not the best probably f- my own fault through many years of um not managing th- that well and, and not caring so much but anyway so i, w- I wasn't in any severe difficulty because I've, I've had numerous um readings that have come back starting with a one which i know for some people would mean they might be Passed out on the floor or in a, a real bad position, but yeah. We, so we just finished, like right, I think the game at the end of the session, got a drink, and then I'd, I'd done this interview and I'd done the uh, test on the as the interview was going on, and then the, I think the camera did shoot and show it, but they didn't put it in the final um, edit, and it came back at one point eight, and the the woman who was interviewing me um, obviously didn't know much about tight one because she didn't react at all, and I was thinking <laughs> if it's if if I was with anyone or speaking to anyone one who's knows about type one or is type one and they'll see oh you've got a blood reading of 1.8 that'll be like oh christ like we need to do I mean, it yeah i mean <laughs> I, I, like i said i was drinking lucas at the time and i'm sure i just gradually came back up and i was fine but yeah my hyper awareness is not the best and that was a good example of it there because i think the interview actually i come across quite well and it's quite interesting now i've done that whole let's assume i've done the whole thing with a a, a score of under two which even for the americans is what's that about 25 30 something like that it's it's yeah, very long yeah um, yeah so yeah that, that 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 test i did during that interview came back at 1.8 mml
0: <laughs> so did you try and play it off as, as if nothing was happening because you're on live tv or you're being recorded live and 1.8 is very low if i have 1.8 i'm I'm gonna hit the floor pretty soon so did you just play it off as if everything was fine
1: uh, i think so yeah i think I, I think i just sort of repeated it right because she'd obviously asked what i was doing so I, i'd said also obviously prick your finger like squeeze a, a, like a small uh, drop of blood out put it on the test strip and then you give it sort of five ten seconds and then it brings up your your reading on, on the machine um and obviously it'd come up and it's sort at of 1.8 and i think i would just go oh, 1.8 and just continued answering the questions and yeah like like not not a lot had really happen and then um i felt okay and obviously like i said i was drinking Leucase so i wasn't in any severe difficulty or anything and i'm sure the lucozade and usually after a session like that like you if you're getting a like a, a a burst of glucose from the liver after any sort of hard exercise is what tends to happen you can often soon have a a high after that so um i'd imagine i I went high quite quickly after um but yeah i think just during the interview i kind of carried on as normal really and the the interviewer um didn't really understand or wouldn't have known that 1.8 is a a pretty low slash bad score or level
0: yeah it's very low and (laughs) it would uh, as i said make me hit the floor pretty soon after that. So, yeah, nice and professionally dealt with. You obviously got more into exercise, more into running specifically as a result of being involved with the diabetic football community. Yeah. And as we both know, regular exercise is going to have just a massive, massive, massive impact, beneficial impact on your blood sugar levels throughout the day and throughout the week. How do you – and I suppose – It can be difficult for people to exercise with diabetes because sometimes it can be complicated, trying to fight highs, trying to fight lows, knowing when to take insulin, knowing what type of food to have before and after. From somebody who runs a lot, runs long distances, how do you prepare for a long distance race?
1: Good question. I think I have, a few, obviously, as you know, with Type 1, you have to be very flexible and adaptable. I kind of have a few sort of strict rules that I will stri- stick to, although, if I do break them, then I'll be aware that uh, the run may be disrupted. Obviously, my main one is um, not running. Within three hours of injecting fast acting insulin, um, I actually try and sort of extend that to four hours because I know, although they're marketed these insulins as sort of lasting for three hours, I can tell everyone for a fact that the reality is they last longer than that because I've run mm. sort of probably three and a half, three and three quarter hours after having uh, some, and I've, I know it's still working me because 10, 15 minutes into the run, I'm dropping um, like a stone blood sugar wise. Um, so that would always be a big one. However, if I'm doing easy runs, especially in the morning, when obviously you can have that that dawn phenomenon where the liver's putting glucose into the bloodstream, so you're going to keep rising in, I, I do often take one or two units before I start those runs. And what I find that does is just keeps me um, kind of sort of flatlining or level rather than – it basically just stops the spike. Um, if I've got a big event on or like a, like a half marathon, which is probably my favourite distance, then I will reduce um, – like my once daily long acting insulin from a couple of days beforehand i'm not too big on reducing that loads because i often find then i'll go high during the night um which is a bit annoying but um so that's something i try and do but just my normal sort of training weeks or if i'm doing shorter distances or longer runs but they're at a slower pace then i won't change that too much um and then of course whilst i'm actually on the run there's a big ones is always got jelly babies with me that's a an absolute no-brainer i won't run without taking glucose with me probably i don't use it on runs that much but there's always times when i do and obviously it's an absolute godsend having it there and then longer runs always take like the energy gels as well which tend to be sort of 20-25 grams of carbs per gel so if i'm on a longer run and i start dropping if i've got one or two of those on me then they can keep me going as well so um those would be my my main kind of rules but as you know like a lot you have to be quite flexible and adaptable with it because of of what can happen uh, with your blood glucose
0: yeah i think essentially the point that we always try and get across and what you're definitely getting across there is The ability to adapt and to change preparation depending on the day, depending on the time of day, depending on the race, the distance, the frequency, the intensity, all of these things can play a role with how you prepare for exercise. And it can be quite complicated, and it is quite complicated, but it's about, again, like we were chatting about earlier, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, finding out how you react to certain things finding out how long your insulin lasts, generally three to four hours, how long your body will respond to different foods and different exercise. I'm actually doing my first marathon in April, Scott. So I haven't obviously ran that long and I'm looking forward to doing it. And I've I've been training for a while and I will obviously continue to train (laughs) up to that point. Do you have any advice for me specifically with that sort of long distance running?
1: yeah obviously make sure you've got plenty of glucose with you whilst you're on the run i would say as well don't worry about starting high because i would always say if you're doing um like short anaerobic exercise generally that will increase your blood glucose but like an Aerobic exercise like a marathon or any long distance running what you 'll find is you will drop but it'll be a gradual drop, but obviously a marathon is a, a long long distance, and it 's going to take uh, hours rather than minutes um, to complete, so you will almost certainly find that you are going to drop so start taking some glucose probably half hour after you start or as soon as you see that you if you if you've got a cgm or any sort of device which is going to give you sort of constant uh, data on your watch or on your phone or whatever um as soon as you see that drop uh, act on it don't let it go too much because then you'll end up going hypo before you get back in range you'll find that you can start dropping quite quickly um so as soon as you see the drop start then start taking the glucose on board so you can counteract the drop
0: yeah it's definitely it's definitely going to be important to keep a constant eye on that cgm graph and it'll just be like any time it dips top it up top it up with glucose top it up with jelly babies i feel as if the bag that i'll have on my back will just be full of glucose drinks jelly babies all those great things that we love that we've probably eaten thousands of at this stage.
1: Yeah, you will also find aid stations around the course as well, which will usually have energy gels and things, so you can you can take advantage um, of those. But yeah, that would be the the biggest because the last thing you want, especially if you're training hard and it's like one event you're aiming up for, you don't you want to try everything you can, so it's not impacted by glucose i mean that's always my kind of not fear is probably the wrong word of it but i'm sure i'll have a big race or event soon which is going to be impacted now i've had what well, i remember the first one i did actually which was in swansea um which was uh, an organized by paul coker of one bloody drop where he was looking, breaking the world record for the most type ones to run a half marathon um t- together and um so there was quite i think it was six between 60 and 70 type ones all all around the the swansea half marathon um and that was kind of my introduction to it and i'd got like you said i'd got involved through the football team um and and paul obviously runs a conference of chris sport and t one day and paul had said there if any of the the guys want to come and run as well like the more the merrier more type ones it'll be great so i ended up Going over there and won um, out of the type ones, um, and it was after that that really kind of sort of kicked on my my desire to get better at it. Um, but even then, I, I did have a hypo. The last uh, last couple of kilometers i was below four and what i find when i'm running and i'm low my mark, i think i'm going at the same speed or i'm going faster but i look at the watch and i'm getting slower and slower but it's <coughs> that it's that mental thing where you i then start getting really angry with myself because i'm i'm telling myself i'm going faster i feel like i'm going faster but the watch is saying i'm getting slower the watch is right it's just a hypo and that mental effect it has on you as well another good um, analogy for this is is one of the guys in the football team that has played tennis at quite a high level and he's when he played tennis um and he's going hypo or had a hy- hypo it's like when returning the ball feels like you're returning a shot put um and yeah like generally any sporting activity hypo you you'll feel like you're, you're doing fine but it's so much harder uh, and the, because you don't have enough glu- the right amount of glucose in your bloodstream to to enable you to do what you're trying to do so um yeah that's the biggest one for me trying i I don't mind i'm someone that really likes to keep a tight range generally but i don't mind a, a higher range um kind of sort of eight nine ten eleven twelve um don't want to go too much higher than that when when i'm running because then obviously the chance of that hypo is a lot less or even when you do start dropping you've got there's a bit of leeway you've got there to to take on glucose to to stop the hypo whereas if you if you're running at sort of five six seven and then you have you start dropping you are very quickly going to be in the hypo zone whereas you've got that bigger range if you start a little bit higher
0: yeah that's always my go-to start position is number one, no fast-acting insulin on board if possible, and then start in the higher range so that you know inevitably your blood sugar is going to come back down. But when it starts to drop, it's longer for you to start feeling the hypo so you're not putting yourself in danger. Coming into the new year, Scott, it's definitely been a strange year. (laughs) As we both know, we were talking about it for a good while before recording this podcast. But what's next for you? What are you excited for for the new year?
1: Uh, Well, I think getting some normality back in the world um, would be a great start. Um, Running well, well, hopefully there'll be a a dire euro again, which is the... um, like the European football championships um, for, for type ones, obviously they, like everything else this year, it was cancelled this year, but it'd be great if that's about even getting some just some sessions back on with with the team, um, would be great because there's a lot of good friendships that have been made there and obviously this year we've not been able to meet up or, or hold any sessions for obvious reasons. Uh, Running-wise for me um, a lot of races I was going to do this year, I'm hoping we'll go ahead next year so it'd be good to do those. So the this kind of showpiece event for me is uh, London marathon in October. So hopefully get myself in some decent shape for that and, uh, see, see what I can go round in.
0: Might see you there. Depending on how the training goes, I might see you there or the, uh, diabetic event in Swansea that'd be really cool
1: yeah I think yeah that, well, that's, that'll be in June um, I think second weekend in June um, yeah there'll hopefully be a load of type ones there uh, making a bit of a weekend of it so hopefully if, if things are a lot better COVID wise then uh, again that was cancelled this year but if think can go ahead next year that'll be great
0: absolutely fingers crossed last question Scott before I let you go I always like to ask my guests this question to finish on a positive note I suppose to quickly reflect on their own personal journey with diabetes up to this point, and you certainly have had an interesting one. If you had the opportunity to thank diabetes for something, what would that be?
1: Put it making me more resilient as a person. Certainly, what what I've been through with it, I feel it's it's made me stronger because I, I don't think I would have had any would hope. I've not have had anything else in my life that would um, give me those feelings and experiences to to make me um stronger so that and the, op- the the opportunities that it gave me with the the whole football and the futsal thing like representing the country the national anthem playing and all, all of us It stood like just before kickoff singing it i never thought i would have that um that would ever happen to me that i'd be representing the uk and singing the national anthem before a, a sporting event that i was playing in um so those would be the, the main things really
0: Yeah, I love that. You've certainly come a long way from a young teenager denying that he has it, keeping it a secret, to now speaking on my podcast, speaking on other podcasts, representing your country internationally for a diabetic football team, and now all the running you do as a result. So I love it. Keep doing what you're doing, and hopefully I will see you at the start line of a big race someday, Scott. Thanks a million for coming on. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again so much for listening. We really appreciate you listening to all these episodes. And if you are getting good value from them, which I hope you are, and I assume you are because you're listening, please rate, subscribe and review because the more that is done, the more diabetics we can reach, the more we can build this diabetic community, which is our goal to help as many people as we can out there because as you know as much as i know diabetes is not an easy condition to live with and the more you know about it and the more involved you feel with other people the easier it is to manage so again really appreciate you listening have a fantastic week chat to you soon take it easy good luck see you after goodbye